Hello everyone and welcome to Northern Bibliosphere, a new podcast series taking you on a literary journey across the north of Scotland. Each episode we'll be going through a different chapter of book culture across this incredible region. I'm your host, Freddie, and together we will be meeting local writers and chat about their work, browsing bookshops and discovering events and initiatives from the local literary scene. I'm really excited to introduce you to our guest today. Uh, she was born and raised in Glasgow, but uh, her family ties are also in the Highlands and Aberdeenshire, where she now lives. Her books really bring history back to life, whether it's her non-fiction works or in her family sagas and romance novels. Her most famous book is Dumb Rebel Bitches, The Women of the 45, which sheds a light on the women who took part in the Jacobite Rising. The great news is that Dumb Rebel Bitches is having a revamp in a new revisited version to celebrate its 25th anniversary with a brand new look and a full reference section added to it. So check this one out and also its companion book, There Are Spenditi, The Man of the 45. But now that's enough for me, let's hear more from the author herself. A warm welcome to Maggie Craig. Hi Maggie, how are you doing? I'm doing not too badly, thanks. Fantastic. Thank you very much for being here and welcome to more Northern Bibliosphere. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. Well, starting from the latest news, at the time of recording, you're just about to have uh, a launch. Yes, it, it's um revised version It's, it's it, of um, Damn Rebel Bitches, The Women of the 45, which was my first published book. Um, and it's the, now the 25th anniversary of the publication which is just like, you know, time just goes whoosh and then you realise how, how many years have passed. So it's the main difference is that I've added all the references and sources at the end for because a lot of people contact me with uh, queries about can you tell me where to find more information about this person? So it just seemed a better idea to just put all that in the book so they'll be able to find the sources if they want to. Yeah, that's great. And uh, it must have been such an interesting thing to go back to something that you wrote such a long time ago. So um, can you tell me a bit about the process of going through um, the first edition and going again through the research as well? I guess that you must have gone through a few different things again, right? Well, yeah, yes, in a way, um, although because I've always given talks about this book, it's kept it fresh in my mind and I've done talks at Culloden fairly frequently over the years. The funny thing was that when I first did it, the internet was kind of in its infancy and you actually had to actually go to all these libraries and archives, which was great fun, but expensive. But I was working at the time as a blue badge Scottish tourist guide. So if I dropped passengers off in York, well, in Hull, usually if they were sailing back to Germany, I usually worked with German visitors. I would tack on a few days in York and then I would go to York Library and look things up. What was really nice about checking the sources, um, even in this very difficult time, these very difficult two years, was I could look up York Library and I could get the references on the internet. So that made it a lot easier to gather it together. But it was lovely, actually. It, it was time consuming, but it was the little frenzies people. So it was going back to spend time with them, which was great. Do you miss a bit the old way of being actually in a library with the actual documents and um, searching for things on physical documents? It's um, when, when I first I am I am old enough 
to have gone to the, the um, National Archives in London, the, the English Archives, British Archives, I suppose, um, when they were in Chancery Lane, which is in the city of London. And it was very old fashioned. It was almost like something out of Dickens, the way the desks were. And you almost expected to see people using quill pens. Not, of course, you put ink anywhere near archives. But I remember once reading things, and I was reading about all these Scots who were tried in London for treason after the Jacobite Rising, and a lot of them were hanged uh, in London. And gruesomely, um, their heads were cut off and put on spikes at Temple Bar. And Temple Bar is quite near Chancery Lane. So I came out, and you know, when you've been researching, you're sort of like a mole coming up for, for light, and you're coming out sort of blinking, thinking, oh, I'm in the, well, it was the 20th century back then. And I passed Chancery Lane and looked up and I thought, oh, once all these people I was reading about had their heads put on spikes there, that's what you don't get over the internet. You don't get that little frisson and you don't get to see somebody's handwriting and or somebody's signature. So that's the thing you don't get. No, definitely. And especially for someone with such a passion for like you for history, it must be such a huge difference. Um, what first sparked the this passion for history? Because um, all your books, both um, fiction and nonfiction, are um, based on history and a lot of research. So um, can you tell me a bit more where that started from? Well, if I was being fae in a, in a good Highland manner, I would say uh, maybe I lived a previous life in the 18th century. I've always been drawn to the 18th century. And I suppose I was brought up with parents who told stories. Um, my mother was from Aberdeenshire and she used to sing some of the old ballads like Miller Tifty's Annie, which is a very tragic song about Annie. And, and she would tell the story as though Annie had died yesterday. And then I looked it up and I found Annie died in the 1600s. So all that sort of connections, it's links to the past. So, so that was what started with the history. And with the Jacobites, my dad, who was in the 1940s, a councillor in Inverness uh, for Mark Inch, took me to Culloden when I was still at primary school. I think I was about 11. And he told me the story of Culloden with tears in his eyes. And it's, I've been hooked ever since. The, the Jacobites took me hostage that day. And I've, I've been their prisoner ever since. And then I had a, a, an uncle um, who had lived in the Highlands, been a signalman uh, at Banavy uh, over by Fort William Way. And he gave me DK Broster's The Flight of the Heron, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know. And it is a fantastic romantic novel in the sense of high romance uh, and a friendship between two men across the political divide. And that remains my favourite book. It's my Fahrenheit 451 book. So one I'll save from the, the flames when they start burning the books. So that's where it started from. It, it, just, it just hooked me and it won't let me go. And there's always something more to find out. There's, there's always another source to go to or, or another eyewitness account. It's fascinating. Yeah, one thing that I think is really interesting, uh, you were saying that, uh, well, your family had ties to the Highlands and uh, Aberdeenshire, but you are originally from Glasgow, right? So how do yep, you, right. um, tell me a bit about how, uh, well, you then maybe moved to Aberdeenshire and then how, what is your relationship with both uh, sides of Scotland? Um, uh, I, I just 
my, my two sisters were born in Inverness. I wasn't, and I've never forgiven my parents for this fact because I would love to have been born in Inverness. But we always went back to Inverness on visits. So that kept up that contact and my parents kept friends in Inverness. So every year we would go back for a visit. Uh, and as regards Aberdeenshire, we always went back to visit uh, my mum's relatives. Didn't know my grandparents. I only knew one grandparent on my father's side. Didn't know my grandparents, but there was, a, I think possibly nowadays children aren't going to have so many aunties and uncles because families aren't as big as they were in the olden days. So we would go back and we'd visit uncles and aunties and they would tell stories as well. And it was also the language of particularly Aberdeenshire Doric. My mother um, came south to Glasgow when she married my dad and she adjusted her accent. And then whenever we went back to Stonehaven, her, her um, sister lived in Stonehaven later, she would, my mother would step off the train at Stonehaven and snap. She would be right back into the Doric. And I would think, who is this woman and what is this language that she's speaking? Um, but it always fascinated me, the, the language and the, the different words for things. And I went on to, to study languages. So I think that must have been part of it as well. It's just always this awareness that history is just there. It's, it's just the other side of a curtain. Yeah, no, and I think it's quite fascinating that then again, you went to, uh, did you train as a translator? Am I correct? I, I, yes, I went to London to do um, uh, German and Spanish. And that was a, a translating, specifically a translating degree. And then I went on later to train as, as a tourist guide. And I showed mainly, not so many Spaniards, but mainly German visitors around Scotland. And the Germans couldn't get enough of Scottish history. They loved Scottish history. Some of it was to do with the movie Highlander uh, with Christopher Lambert. Um, and they, they, they were always, you know, they loved it when we went to Elan Donan because this was somewhere that they'd seen on screen and it was very romantic to them. So it, it honed the, the storytelling skills because a lot of people in continental Europe, I don't know whether you would agree, um, what they knew about Scottish history was tagged onto Mary Queen of Scots or Mary Stuart or Maria Stuart. Uh, so it was saying, thinking, well, this person was her grandson or this person was her forefather in some other way. So it was all getting the stories right and telling people the stories of history. Yeah, no, I agree the fact that we don't study Scottish history almost at all, apart from, again, Mary Queen of Scots and very tiny bits and bobs of history. So when I first came here, the Jacobites, it's, all, it's still pretty new to me. So it's, it's great to have such books as yours to learn from um, the local history as well. Uh, but I'm thinking, did your, the fact that you were in a, in a house where you had so many different languages, uh, well, the different accents, and also the fact that you were in contact with people that kind of like maybe viewed Scotland from an external point of view, did it get into your writing in a way? Um, I'm not sure that's an interesting question. I think sometimes I assume that everybody knows what I know. Uh, and. And, and I don't need to explain it too much. And then an editor says, said to me, assume nothing, assume no knowledge. So, so you have to think this person might not know anything about this particular subject. So it's how to put that over without being what I call clunky, which is the greatest crime a writer can commit, in my opinion, if, if you weigh the reader down with too much um, 
too many details. It's different, of course, between nonfiction and fiction. In fiction, you're you're spinning a story. In nonfiction, you want all the facts and you want to slot them all together so that they, they make a narrative, but it's still story. Yeah, no, and I think one really great thing that you do with your characters, both I think in a in your novels, but also one thing that really got me is how you put this into the uh, nonfiction. Um, side so like in them rebel bitches how the characters are very two-dimensional you wouldn't expect these from a history book so it's it, how do you uh, get to have your characters kind of like take life even if maybe like what you have were like some documents from old that uh, how do you how do you make them so alive what's the process um well it's imagination really if you're looking at a love letter someone has written to his girlfriend when he's a soldier with the Jacobite army. You're thinking, this is a scrappy piece of paper. They couldn't have had much paper. They must have just had to find a bit of paper. And who had pens, who had quills, which would have been in those days? Okay, they sent this from Moffat and it was it was October, November. It was starting to get cold. So what were they feeling like? What were their emotions? And if you go to Culloden, it's like, you're looking up at the sky and you're looking up at the same sky that they were looking up at and you're looking across at Ben Wivis on, on the other side of the water and that was their view as well. So it's 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 imagining it. Um, when I wrote my book about Scottish radicals, there was a terrible massacre in Greenock, a uh, non-fiction uh, book, and my editor said, uh, and I'd, I'd speculated a little, I'd allowed myself to speculate a little on what people would have been feeling like that night because eight people were shot dead. And my editor said, um, it's a bit novelistic. I said, yeah, that's what I do. It's because I write novels and nonfiction. Facts are sacred in nonfiction. You can't tell the wrong facts. But you, I think if you know the story quite well, you can speculate a little about how people were. I'm also very interested in clothes, 18th century clothes. So you can think, oh, wonder what it was like to wear these big skirts and hooped petticoats and things. So it's that as well. And what were people eating and drinking? Again, I'm, you know, I've got this obsession with tea, if you've read Damn Rebel Bitches. <laughs> and it was a, a hugely fashionable um, uh, drink. Coffee was old fashioned. Uh, tea, tea was the end thing. So it's, it's all those sort of things. And just going to the places like going to Edinburgh and going down the closest and just imagining who's around the corner um, and it's not somebody from your own time. So we're doing a bit of a detective's jobs as well, but going, yes. going back in history yes. as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I like about it. And I like finding another little nugget, another little fact and thinking, how can I use that? Of course, you have a passion for the Jacobite era but I'm thinking do you how do you find the hook for a book how I for damn rebel bitches for instance for instance uh how did you decide I really want to write a book about it about the, the women that lived there that happened quite often quite often there's um the spark jumps between fiction and non-fiction and way back when in the mid 1990s I had started to write a big time slip Jacobite novel, which still hasn't been published, but I will get around to finishing it one day. It got rave rejections from 12 publishers who all said, um, ask her to go and write something else, which I did. Uh, but when I was uh, researching this, 
I I found there was more than Flora McDonald involved in the Jacobite Rising, and I found Anne McIntosh, um, the the Lady of Moy, and it was there was a little bit of reported conversation between her and her husband, and it just they just jumped off the page when I saw that, and I just wanted to find more and more women, and I'd always been annoyed when people spoke as though women were not involved in history because you know we're half the human race and um, so of course we were involved in history and after a, one of my first talks I gave about damn rebel bitches a man said to me quite aggressively how could women have been involved they didn't even have the vote I said men didn't even have the vote you did politics in a different way then and it was finding out what women did and it, they didn't just stay at home and, and look after the children. Not that there's anything wrong with staying home and looking after the children. I've done that myself. But they, a lot of women were active in other spheres. So it was that that kept me going to, to try and find more women who had been involved. Yeah, And I mentioned, was it quite difficult to find references to women that were involved? Like, I guess that maybe they were, um, do you find... Did you find it difficult to find the sources? I'm thinking because maybe documentation of uh, women's lives were a bit less documented than men. Absolutely. Um, once I started going back, and of course the, the, the big source is the Lion in Mourning, which has lots of eyewitness accounts and, and reports, and not, not just for gentry, not just for elite women, but for so-called ordinary women too. But then I started working my way back to the to the documents and like going to, for example, to the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh uh, and to Aberdeen University and Inverness Library, which has got lots of sources. But you had to do a lot of reading and you found loads of men and they were interesting, too. But then you'd find a couple of women sort of tagged onto their story. So it was it was. How can I put it? It wasn't difficult, but you just had to put in a lot of work. To, for what you got back yeah um yes women's lives were, were not so well documented but we were there you know um somebody also said to me that I was being revisionist and I said no I'm just I'm just finding out what was there and what was happening and who was there so definitely and like again because it's because this has not been told before as a like as a story maybe um and there were other facts highlighted before it's not so much yeah I said um yeah, it was the same man, actually, um, who said to, uh, to me, and he, he actually took a step back when he said it. He said, are you a feminist then? <laughs> In that sort of tone of voice. I said, well, yes, but I'm a peopleist too. <laughs> I, I, it was the idea that if you chose to write about women, it was a bit odd. Why, why would you choose to write about women? But that was as nothing to the companion volume, Beras Banditi, where I chose to write about men. And some people don't even nowadays don't really think a woman should be writing about men in that sense it's it's because i've never uh, never stood well i've stood on a battlefield i've never taken part in a battle but most men haven't taken part in a battle either so it's and you just sort of detect it occasionally from people i think it's changing now is it getting better it's getting better yeah okay yeah. that's great that's good to hear a bit by bit um yeah yeah I'm thinking, do you, um, in terms of your research as well, how much do you um, find for inspiration for your fictional characters instead in the ones that truly existed back in, existed back in the day? Well, in my um, Jacobite novels, um, Gathering Storm and, and um, Dance the Storm, uh, one of the 
well, I wouldn't, well, he is an important character. He's not in the book a lot. Is Duncan Forbes of Culloden, Lord President of the Court of Session, whom, whom I am in love with. I think he was a wonderful guy. And he's trying to stop the Jacobite rising because he doesn't want Scotland to be plunged into bloodshed. He tried. I'm saying he's trying because now, to me, he's in the present tense. And my hero is his protege. So I, I wouldn't want to write... Uh, lots of people do, and that's fine. I wouldn't want to write a historical novel about real people who were the main characters. So the main characters are fictional people, imaginary people, but there's lots of real people uh, revolving around them. Like, for example, in the Storm books, Professor Monroe, who was professor uh, at Edinburgh University, and he was a real character, and I had put him in Dan Rebovich's because he wrote a letter to his daughter saying he wished she would keep her bedroom tidier. At some length, <laughs> all the time, no matter which age it is, kids will always keep their rooms not tidy. That's quite nice to see in terms of what you can relate to the present as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of things that haven't changed. You know, human nature doesn't change, so you can see that all through. Yeah, and I'm thinking also, well, of course, um, why did you decide then to write the male counterpart to Dumb Rebel Bitches? Uh, did you publish it, was it in 2009? Am I correct? Yes, it's 2009. You've done your research. Yeah. <laughs> um, because uh, my son said, playing devil's advocate um, and using the Doric, he said, um, you've, you've written about the wifeys, but you need to write about the mannies. <laughs> so I thought I would write about the mannies. Um, and I, I loved writing about the men because the men are just as interesting. And you did get, of course, snapshots of maybe not of the main historical known, historically known names, but of the people that were living and breathing everyday life and that were like the common people. Yes. Um, I, 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 I had a sort of... Um, I don't know if it was a revelation on the road to Damascus, but um, about Bonnie Prince Charlie, because I, 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 when I was young, I thought he was a romantic hero. And then I found out his, the sad end to his life and I thought, oh, no, don't want to know. And now I've come back round to thinking he had very little choice as to what he did. He'd been born to that role. And I think he, despite people, some people won't hear anything good of him, but I think he must have been really charismatic. Because why, why would he have got people to follow him if he hadn't been charismatic and they hadn't thought, yes, this guy's going to, to, to lead us to a, a different situation um, in the country. It's going to lead us to, to change things. And I've lost the thread a bit there as to what you were asking about. Um, oh, oh, going to write about the men. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it was. Yeah, there was, there was a, a yeah, quite a big gap between Dan Rebel Bitches and Beras Banditi. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I wrote, but yeah, I wrote about Bonnie Prince Charlie, but I wanted to write about the the lesser known men, and they're just as interesting. And if you write about the the man who who got a bullet through his his foot his, at Culloden and went home, and it, it his wound festered and it was horrible, and he could hardly walk, and you think, oh, that must have been awful. You're you're being hunted by the redcoats, and you're really in pain. So it's that sort of human thing, and the Chevalier de Johnson who got off the field at Culloden and was trying to get back to Edinburgh. But of course the Redcoats were, were guarding every 
river, really, because a lot of the travel was done by water, by, by ferries. And he stayed with poor people in Angus for about three weeks. And practically all they ate was oatmeal. It was oatmeal morning, noon and night because that's they were poor and that's that's all they had. And when he moved on to someone else, he just asked for, could, could I have some eggs? Could I have some cheese? Could I have this? Could I have that? But he also said that all the time that he was eating this oatmeal, everybody was very healthy. So there, there's a, a lesson to us. We should just eat oatmeal and we'll be very healthy. But I'm sure we need something more than oatmeal. <laughs> Well, it's still, if we start with oatmeal and then I think it's, yeah, again, it's a lesson to ourselves, maybe a bit yeah. of more variety, but yes. <laughs> more tea, more tea as well. Tea and oatmeal, yes. <laughs> and you're sorting. Yeah. Um, uh, I was wondering also, well, of course, we were saying that you're from Glasgow, so can you tell me a bit about um the um the fiction and well i was thinking mostly about the fiction that you wrote about um glasgow the a uh, glasgow saga glasgow and yeah how did it um, get you back to where you uh, grew up uh yes i had as, as i said i had started to write this time slippy novel set between modern glasgow you know, in the 1980s and 90s, which is now history, um, and um, the Jacobites. And that was the one that went to 12 publishers who all said, who all gave it rave rejections. And a couple of them said, ask her to write a family saga, um, Glasgow, because they were, it turned out later they were looking for, because the family sagas are very much located in their place. You know, that there's London sagas and Liverpool sagas and, rural Dorset sagas for England and they were looking for someone to write about Glasgow and I remembered that um, when I was we 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 actually lived right on the border between Glasgow and Clyde Bank and there was all sorts of memories there about walking along the, the banks of the Clyde and going to Clyde Bank and going up to Glasgow which was always a big adventure to go up to Glasgow and it the book is not about memories because it, it's a, a an imagined story about different people but a lot of what I was told as a child fitted in there. And I had this my uncle Alec, whom I was talking about, his wife, Auntie Lizzie, she had been in service to a well-off family uh, on the other side of Glasgow. And she told me all sorts of things about what it was like to be in service. So that all fed into it. And eventually I, I wrote six of them. And there's a seventh one on the stocks somewhere. Well, I, I know what it is, uh, but when I get time, I'm hoping to finish that as well. Okay, so you're still keeping on going with the uh, going with the sagas, and also like so you have other projects brewing there. Yes, it, it, it's good to um, refresh yourself. Um, I find it very refreshing to go between fiction and nonfiction, because nonfiction, to a, a large extent, is much easier because you're looking for the facts and you're you're arranging the facts in a coherent and cogent way whereas in in fiction you're spinning something up out of nothing so it it's it's more difficult really yes i'm thinking how do you find the balance between the two because of course in in fiction you have to be a bit more um you have to be of course less facts 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 as more descriptive but you still manage to create a story that is very uh, coherent historically so does that historical will be the backbone of the novice as well and helps you creating a story that is well more... I, I, 
Yeah, I, 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 I was lucky that in that I always had good editors um, for the sagas. And um, there was one in particular where a lot of the action was taking place during the Second World War. And my editor said to me, you're not retelling the history of the Second World War, you know. And I thought, yes, I know what she means. Because I was putting in chunks about what was happening in Norway or what was happening in France or whatever. I think in fiction, although I try to bring the, the real people to life in history, but in fiction, you dig deeper into their emotions. You dig deeper into their emotions and you have to get them clashing with other people. Um, so it's what's the conflict here? And you ask yourself all these questions, like what does this character want? And what's stopping this character from getting it? You you don't do that in fiction. You don't do that in nonfiction. And that's a brilliant work that I think you're you're doing with again creating characters on both sides, both in fiction and non-fiction. Um, no, but um, yeah, I'm thinking. Well, where, where you are now, is there any potential for a local saga around Huntley or around Aberdeenshire? I don't know. It would be interesting to do something like that. Um, it's been done. Some people have done it. And um, we live in a tiny little village, which I won't mention because it's my secret little place. But there's all sorts of folklore ar around this village, which I find very interesting and mysterious characters. And, you know, Kelpies, these, wa these um, water horses, we've got a burn that runs around our garden and there's apparently a Kelpie in, in the burn. And also... The, what they call in dialect the farm tunes, i.e. the farm towns, where there's a big um, farm near us with a big close, as they call it. And I found an old, I did a local history, a small local history pamphlet. Um, and before the tractor, the tractor came in in the 1930s, but before the tractor, you needed a lot of workers in the farm tunes. And there's a picture of them all gathered together in their Sunday best, there's about 10 of them on one farm and two of them have got fiddles. One of them's got a set of bagpipes. So they really did make their own entertainment. I think they worked really hard, but I think they let off steam quite enthusiastically too. So it'd be interesting to do something about that. I would definitely be happy. You've also spoken about Edinburgh as well. So what's your relationship with Edinburgh? My relationship with Edinburgh is uh, you may know that Glasgow and Edinburgh are supposed to be rivals, which I just think is a load of nonsense because they're two very different cities and they've got different things to offer. I, Since I was quite young, my sisters and I, we used to go through to the Edinburgh Fringe from when I was about 14, I suppose, because they were a couple of years older than me and they were the responsible adults, allegedly. And we used to go through to Edinburgh and I just... I just love Edinburgh. I just love all the history and the castle. And I think we take it for granted. But when you look up at the castle, you think, ah, it's fabulous. How lucky are we to have a big castle like that? And all the closes and the, the high street, the Royal Mile. And then my children both went to a university in Edinburgh. So we started visiting um, quite a lot over about 20 years. And now I'm very annoyed with them because they've both moved away. <laughs> so I don't have somewhere to stay in Edinburgh. But it's just it's just a lovely place. And again, you're back to the history. The history's there in Glasgow, but Glasgow's always been off with the old on with the new, although there are some lovely historical parts, but Edinburgh, the history's just there. I love them both. 
Yeah, and I'm thinking about a one switch moment where you kind of like talk about both the new town and the vaults and like old town. Um, can you tell me a bit more about this relationship of the growing city and the um, the darker side of the old city with history and all its issues, which probably on both sides. Well, it's 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 classic and. Crime novelists use this a lot, but I, one sweet moment, um, if you've read it, it's a love story, but it's not a pink and fluffy one. It's um, what, what I call romance noir. And it was this idea that you, if it's a Romeo and Juliet love story, I suppose, that the, 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 the male um, hero, the hero is from the new town. So he's, he's a well-off lad and the girl works in an oyster cellar and it was such a gulf. I mean, it was a physical gulf between the old town and the new town, but the people from the new town would come back for the university, for the college and so on. So it was just this idea that this girl could have been in the oyster cellar. And something else which um, comes from modern times that when students go to university, they quite often um, go about sampling all the hostelries and getting a bit drunk. And I thought, well, that's probably always been happening. So I decided to, to put him and his, his friends in this oyster cellar and Kate, the, the heroine, who has a very difficult life. But, you know, he's smitten. Uh, but there's obviously it would be very difficult for the, the class divide to be bridged because his parents are horrified, as they would be. Um, so I won't say any more as to how, how it pans out. And also I wanted to put in, I, I set that against the royal visit of King George IV to Edinburgh when Edinburgh exploded in tartan. Um, I'm, re I'm researching that just now because it's it's 200 years since George IV came to Edinburgh and there are various plans to, to commemorate the event. And I've been looking through the British newspaper archive, which is just a wonderful resource. And somebody in Edinburgh said that Edinburgh was having a fit of tartan. They weren't all happy that tartan was being used. So um, I set it against that because I thought um, that gives me a structure as because the king was here for, um, well, they call it one in 20 daft days. It wasn't quite that length of time, but there were things happening. So it was nice to be able to, to weave the characters uh, in through the, the royal visit. And then two years later, there was the Great Fire of Edinburgh, which was uh, pretty disastrous. So that was something to end on a dramatic high note with that. Yeah, no more spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers now, but um, you, you're going to be for the launch of uh, the newly the revised versions of your uh, of Dam Rebel Beach, Beaches and Bear Arspen Ditty. You're going to launch them at Culloden, right? At the commemoration? Hopefully, um, COVID permitting. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. Do you quite often go back to Culloden for the commemorations you were saying? Oh, yes. Uh, I've been going for about um, the past 20 years or so. Yeah, mm -hmm. find it, I still find it a very emotional place, as so many people do. Yeah, it's quite, uh, I mean, it's quite interesting how to see how many people are still like commemorating something that happened. You, you see it maybe more with the Second World War and facts that are relatively closer, but Culloden seems to have a such a special place in people's heart, especially locally. Like for me, it's quite impressive and, and very fascinating. Yes, yes. And it, it it does. People do talk about it as though it happened yesterday at, at Culloden. Um, I went to Culloden last summer just, just 
just to go, just just for a loop round, um, with a couple of family members, and it, it was a beautiful day. And we met a, a man who was telling his granddaughter the story. His granddaughter was seven, and she looked really upset. And she said, "Well, well, why did we fight on this bad ground?" So she was, and I thought, "There's the next generation getting taught about it and getting told about it, which was interesting." Yeah, no, and like with such a, again, if people now feel it that much, it's gonna be like it's passing on. And what do you feel? It's um, do you think it's still this failed in comparison to other other facts of history? Because um, because so many people sacrificed themselves and their way of life and their livelihoods and because they had that last stand I think they must have known that they weren't going to win but they still remained loyal I think it's the loyalty and the sacrifice yeah and yeah no it's again very fascinating as a thing um I'm thinking also going on a lighter note um I know that well of course you've done you had your books on the Jacobite era for many years. And uh, I'm thinking, uh, it's a bit of a silly question maybe, but are you an Outlander fan as well? Do you like it? Yeah, I think she's created some great characters, fantastic characters, um, especially Claire and Jamie. Um, yeah, yeah, I think she's, and I think she's done good work because she's brought a lot of people to Jacobite history, as you'll know. And she's brought up in normal times, um, brought a lot of visitors to Scotland and, and to Culloden. So, yeah, I think they're great. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you do you find many fans of Outlander that come and then discover you as well? Sometimes, yes. They're, they're, the Outlander fans are lovely because um, they're, they're very loyal. Um, we've been talking about loyalty again. Um, they're very nice. I, I'm, I'm, I count the Inverness Outlanders among my best pals. Um, so we always um, talk to each other on social media and, and share what we're doing. That's grand. We normally end up our um, interviews with a couple of uh, questions. So talking to you as a reader as well, what are you reading at the moment? Um, I, can, I can show you. I know it won't go on the podcast, but I'm reading. Oh, Ellie Griffiths, The Locked Room. Is it going well? I love these. these. These are crime novels and it features Ruth Galloway. It's in North Norfolk in England. It's a very mysterious sort of area, all marshland and, and old legends. And she's in love with a policeman called Harry Nelson. Unfortunately, Harry Nelson is married. And they've got, but they've got a child between them, and I just love them. But this just came in today, and I'm having to say to myself, do not read this too quickly, because I'll read it too quickly, <laughs> and then I'll think, I wish I hadn't read it too quickly. <laughs> I, I read recently um, Antonia Hodgson, The Silver Collar, um, which is another um, historical sort of a historical um, novel with a strong love story within it. Um, what else have I read? Um, have to think about it. Devil Water by Anya Seaton, which again is about Jacobites, but it's about English Jacobites um, in the fifteen, in the seventeen fifteen, and I thought it was a wonderful book. It's uh, a lot of it takes part in Northumberland, which is a I don't know if you know that part of England, but it's it's lovely. Again, it's mystery. I'm always drawn to things that have got some form of mystery in them. And also, I, I am not saying this just to keep in with her. 
uh, the two of them. I love um, I read Lynn Anderson's latest um, this year and Margaret Kirk. And again, Margaret Kirk's most recent book had there was a certain amount of otherworldly aspects to it. Really enjoyed it. That's great. Are you someone who reads multiple books at a time or just you focus on one? You have yes. yeah, different yes. ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm reading um, I'm reading a nonfiction by John Preble. I'm a great admirer of John Preble, Preble of course, who wrote Culloden. And this is The King's Jaunt about George IV's um, visit to um, Edinburgh. Uh, yeah, I like to read more than one book at a time. My, my husband doesn't understand me. Um, <laughs> he just sits down and reads his book and just waits till he's finished it. Do you do that as well? I have moments. I have moments. I think that I have moments where I'm like, right, I'm going to read one at a time. I'm going to focus very well. Another one, I'm like, yeah, but I want to read this, 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 this. <laughs> so I think it, it's very much like instinctual. It's some, sometimes you just want to read what feels right in the moment, don't you? I, I do actually, I do read some, what some people might call frivolous books. Um, there's a, a writer called T.A. Williams, um, Terence, I think, and he writes books set in in sunny places like Italy. Um, <laughs> and, and, and they're kind of romances, but there's, there's always fantastic Italian food. And sometimes it's just nice to read a book like that <laughs> and, and, and just get caught up in it and, and thoroughly enjoy it. I think it have you ever read anything from Camilleri? No. Would you recommend him? He's a like if you do like crime writing, he's a, a Sicilian writer. I think that uh, it's quite famous. Montalbano, the Inspector Montalbano. Oh yes, I've seen Inspector. I've watched Inspector Montalbano. It's very popular in Italy, but the books are great for how he describes the food as one of the best ones in terms of description of Sicilian food it just makes your mouth water so much so if you like the um uh, the type I totally recommend that have you seen um, programs that were on last year with Richard E Grant where he went to France and he went to Spain and he went to Italy uh, to, to speak about the literature and it was a serious book Christ stopped at Eberly um and, and and various other books I thought that was really interesting yeah, so you you took me in advance earlier when you talk about, I usually ask about a book that changed your life or an author that has inspired you, so we can go with The Flight of the Heron as the... Absolutely, Okay, yes. that's it. Uh, and do you have a place where you prefer to write? Like a nice place where you're like, okay, this is the place where I channel all my creative juices and... <laughs> um, I, I, I try in, not to be hidebound by place. Um. At the moment, I'm sitting in my dining room and you would not want to see my dining table because it's full of books I'm going to read, books I'm going to do research out of. So I keep thinking I should find a little book nook that, that I, I, you know, would just all flow. Um, but it doesn't always work like that. I know a lot of people like to work outside and cafes and so on. And that's that's nice. But of course, it hasn't been really possible to do it for these two very strange years. Yeah, no, you have to make do what, what you have. And probably, can you not, like, uh, improve as well the way that you work at home? Like, fact that, okay, maybe you're going to focus on making it a space where you work well. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, I have I have little um, sort of 
um, mascots, I suppose you would call them. I've got a piece of um, port soy marble, which I will, well, I might be able to find. I'm not sure, but I don't need to find it at the moment. And I've got a wee um, wooden owl and he just sits beside me and, and, and it's quite nice to have just that and to have to light a cook, sometimes light a candle, um, which might be a bit woo woo, but um, although I had to uh, like, we were caught in the, the, the power cuts at the end of November and um, was it two weeks ago? So it was four, so those of candles four, then. four days in November and then three days and everything goes off when you lose the electricity. So candles became less romantic for a while. Um, they were really, um, they were functional. Yeah, but the, the, they can be very good both for inspiration and for power cuts. Hopefully yeah. they don't happen again, touch wood, not anytime soon. Well, when, when I was um, in the most recent one, I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll read a book by candlelight. And this will be quite good because it will be my, like my characters reading a book by candlelight. And I discovered if you only got one candle, you sometimes have to angle your book so that you can get enough light on it. <clears throat> and I thought, well, that was a that was a kind of silver lining of having no electricity that I now know that it's not always easy to read a book by candlelight. Yeah, doesn't it? Uh, because you like to um, empathize and think of how your characters as well leave, doesn't it make it a bit more real? Yes, and also because when you when your candle lit, even if you've got a few more candles lit, the room has got shadowy corners, which is nice, which is quite inspirational. So that that has fed into the writing already of the the work in progress about oh. feeling not quite as though you might not be alone. That sort of idea when you are alone. Mm. Well, that's nice. It sounds like uh, it will turn maybe even in a. Um either spy or supernatural story <laughs> yeah yeah i'd really like to write a, a great ghost story um maybe that would be good for aberdeenshire because aberdeenshire people in aberdeenshire would have you believe they're all very practical but you don't need to go very far below the surface <laughs> to find believe in a lot know. of mysterious things <laughs> okay no that's great looking forward to that to that work um, and the last question, do you have a perfect place where to read? Not in front of a candle, maybe, or yes? <laughs> uh, not in front of a cam candle. Um, I like, like a lot of people, I like to read in bed. That's great. No, uh, I think that's all for today. Thank you so, so much for being here. It's been, it's been really great to talk to you and uh, really looking forward to your work and to see all the new notes on your new... or new notes on your historic books and your big sellers so um yeah good luck with the launch with that as well so that's a wrap for today if you want to know more about maggie's work i'm gonna leave as usual all the relevant links in the show notes so have a look at that um, and thank you so so much for listening to this episode of northern bibliosphere I really hope that I'm going to see you again in the next episode where we'll discover more about the writers and events in our region. If you like the show, please send a link to a friend that might like it or tag them on our social media. If you want to leave a review, that will also really, really help us reach more book lovers around the world. And if you have an author, book or literary project that you really would like featured on our podcast, please drop us an email at northernbibliosphere.pod at gmail.com or get in touch on our social channels. Finally, we also have another couple of podcasts in the Highland News and Media family. 
so if you're fancying uh, to keep up to date with all the latest news uh, from the sports scene in the Highlands, have a look at uh, or listen at Bulls and Whistles. And if you're a keen walker, follow John Davidson in Active Outdoors where he takes us across all the trails and wonderful sceneries of the Highlands. Thank you very much again and see you next time. Have a great weekend.